everyone. I'm here with uh, with Aaron, who's joining me from the UK. How are you this morning? Good, good. Thanks, Dave. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for the call. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you, too. <laughs> Aaron, um, you had reached out to do one of these holiday chats, and you had put a couple of different things in your in your request. You currently have a property business, and you also wanted to talk about acquiring a business. Um, what did you want to get into first? Let's talk about the business you have today. Why don't you describe it for me um, so I have an idea of what's going on there? Yeah, no problem. It's probably something that you've um, not really uh, heard much about before. I mean, so, right, so I started in property in 2000. Um, I was in the building game before that. Um, I kind of got on to do other investment stuff in, in property. But so just to tell you about how I started, because that's what, what I'm still doing today, which is buying shared houses or buying ha- buying houses and then splitting them up into rooms and then sell, uh, renting them as rooms. I'm not sure if you have that in Canada or the US, but um, we, we call problem. it rooming houses over here. Okay, right, yeah, yeah. So here they're called HMOs or shared houses or whatever. And now they're like licensable if they're over six people. There's a lot of regulations come in. Um, so I, I have like 30 rooms in the local uh, town next to where I live, and um, it's it's all of a sudden become quite a good income because of the way the benefit system works. So we're helping homeless people, rehoming ho- homeless people. And it's always had its um, challenges, but because of the money's gone right up, we, we tend to get about twice as what you'd get on the open market at the moment. And um, because since I've been doing it about 20 years ago, every man and his dog does property and rents rooms out now, but there's no competition for what I do, which is mm. um, with these people, which are quite difficult to deal with. Um, so, yeah, so um, it's, it's, I've just finally got the management sort of half, you know, sorted out. And as we were just talking about, the um, this situation for me has always been having staff. And I've tried to have just one person doing all the work, which doesn't really ever work because, like you said before, they just have too much value. They're like a superhero that you're trying to find this person to do everything. And it's not possible usually to find that in a person anyway, an employee. And, um, and of course, also they have a they, they value themselves very highly and um, and uh, know that they they're indispensable and start causing problems, which I've had a lot of in, in the last three so managers. Let me ask a couple of questions because I want to make sure that I'm clear about what we're talking about here. So you're not just letting out rooms to individuals that you you have to have an employee there because there's some sort of uh, social program component to this where you're. Uh, not really no i just i just try to take a step back from the business as much as possible so um they're just let on normal tenancies but because they're um there's 30 rooms over five properties it's just letting uh people in doing repairs and maintenance which is ongoing and on and always like and it could be like go and meet some electrician there or um the council's going to have a visit and that's a lot of visits you're talking about one person kind of acting as your manager across the five properties yeah yeah okay. all right i understand yep yeah and uh, that, that's where i mean like you know that's in the past so it's also like some sort of superhero that can use excel that can do accounts that can do bookkeeping that can then go out and is prepared to like move rubbish around and take it to the dump and all that type of thing very very difficult i found uh, someone and he was around for a few years and he was quite young but I was always constantly correcting him, showing him what to do. And it was like having an apprentice, something like that. Recently, because I've had a lot of problems with those types, that that, that situation, I've tried to split the job up into mm-hmm. what a letting agent might look like, where you've just got people in the, in the office. I've got a very good Filipino um, PA, brilliant, 
that I got for a property person. So she trained her up to a certain degree and she's able to manage everything on Excel, all the um, rents and bookkeeping and more, just carries on, you know, finding people on Facebook in the local area for repairs and things like that. So that's worked out really well. And then I've got a lady in Leeds that I've set up a housing company to house homeless people direct from councils. She was already doing it anyway. And hopefully after Christmas, we're going to get it properly launched with the website and everything so that we're actually then getting paid from councils like she is at the moment uh, to take people from the local councils. So okay. pretty much it. Yeah. So. And so since you divided things up from trying to have that one superhero manager into these different roles, it's been more successful for you? Yeah, sorry, I forgot to mention I've got one guy on the ground who's a repairman and he's doing signing paperwork and doing everything that needs to be done on the ground in terms of repairs and so on. And I think I've been sort of quite lucky in the fact that he's not your average plumber. He's a property maintenance guy, so he's good with apps and uh, computers, like reasonably okay with computers and printing things off and not getting miserable and pissed off and buggering off and not coming back again like a lot of trades. Um so yeah, so it's, yeah, it's going quite well. So I've got those three people, and then I'd like to maybe my my hope would be that I can try and either build on this and then buy more businesses. Um, and I think that was one of the questions I asked you, wasn't it? You talked a lot about this guy, maybe that you used to know or bought businesses mm. through you, that was able to manage multiple businesses because he was trained in, like in that area because he was a manager for a large company. Yeah. Um, so the, the guy I, I mentioned before, his name was Tony and he was a, a VP of a, of a in, within a, a pretty large company, had many department heads reporting to him. And the, the way that he did it is he created a standard, some people may call it a dashboard, but it was like a standard weekly report or summary of what he wanted to know about that department. And so within his role as a vice president every week his reporting managers would would have this thing prepared and they might talk about you know have a brief meeting about it but that's how he kept an eye on what was going on in all the different departments and when he started to buy businesses he just employed the same strategy he had managers in businesses but he created these weekly dashboard reports and it allowed him to see what was going on in the business you know and, and whatever was important for that business so you know, number of inquiries, number of sales, number of tickets, average ticket, um, you know, what, what, at what point are the receivables right now or the work in progress, like the, based on the type of business, what it was. And then, so he was still working his vice president job and he acquired three different businesses and he would spend his Saturday mornings just going through these reports and then call his managers if he had to and, and talk about what was going on. So it sounds like you are sort of getting into that groove with what you're doing because now you've got several different people who are doing different things. You know, your maintenance guy, how do you, how do you manage his efforts? Do you have like a, a work order system that you have set up where the, there's like uh, jobs no, and then he does them or something? No. And I, I'm sort of kind of wondering, I've, I've only just taken him on in the last sort of few weeks or about a month and I was sort of testing him out to see what he's like, but I can already see, which is always the issue that he's not doing the hours that he says he is. And of course, how, how do I stop trying to make sure of that? And I said to him in the very beginning, he's got to stick to the system where you use Telegram, just, just purely uh, a messaging system, just for when you get to the job, 
take a picture of the front door, take pictures of what you're doing, and then take a picture when you leave and explain the problem. And we can file all that. And my bookkeeper knows exactly which property the work's been done on. And that's what I need. And he didn't want to do it. And then he sort of started, I said, you've got to do it. Otherwise it won't work. And then he's like started to do it. And I can see that he spent two days doing smoke checks, which should have taken a few hours. Um, it's sort of not really working. So that's where I'm at with him. And it's also where I'm at with uh, the lady in Leeds who I'm starting this business with. She's, they're not trained managers or they're not trained in big reporting, if you like. Mm -hmm. So this is the issue. They're, you know, sort of, I suppose, what you might call lower level staff or whatever, and you're trying to get them to follow systems. <laughs> they, just, they just won't really. And in the past, I've kind of put up with that. But the question is how much how much you put up with and then of course you know for me in the past it's always been where i'm relying on this one person i can either train someone up new or just part with what i've got sort of thing so yeah. so your your handyman are you paying him on salary or by wage uh by the hour okay and i'm, I'm just work. Te telegram is um is, is it just a communication app i'm not it's like whatsapp it's just like whatsapp so it's just it's like just whatsapp us. okay yeah yeah so we just so, use that Specifically for that. I'm, I'm wondering if maybe there isn't a better tool for you. Um, some kind of, of work order management tool. Yeah, and, I was having a look. And, and, he, and here's why. Because um, if you had a tool set up for your business where you could have different work orders going in, um, you could have your handyman, like some the, the person who is managing the flow of the work orders could send some of these jobs to your handyman but maybe there's a job that gets created for repainting a whole apartment, for example. Well, maybe that job goes to a painting firm. Maybe it maybe goes to somebody else. It doesn't go to him. And if you start to use that kind of system, then you can start to attach the individual costs of those jobs to the buildings. So it'll keep your bookkeeping straight, but you're also building out the ability at the same time to then start having clients who own buildings that are getting you to manage them because then you can if you create a work order attached to that you know mr smith's building or something then all of a sudden at the end of the month what you you can reconcile with mr smith and say that they used three hours of your handyman's time and so then you can start to grow the business you have not just with your own fleet of real estate but by adding other people's properties and you know i when I owned properties, I had two three-unit buildings and a four-unit building. And when I started off, I was a single man with no kids. And I, I did everything. I did all the painting, all the drywall repair. I tried to fix toilets, even though I'd have to run back to the hardware store three times and talk with the guy there. And, you know, it would take me all afternoon to fix the toilet. It was just ridiculous, but I didn't know any better at the time. And then I got married and then I started to have children. I just didn't have the time. So the first thing I did was I started to try to use subcontractors on my own. So when there was a plumbing problem, I would call, I found a plumbing outfit who was willing to call my tenants and make their own appointments. And I thought, wow, that, that really removes a lot of burden from me. And so they weren't the cheapest, but they would call the tenant, they would make their own appointment, go over there, fix the problem. And I would just get a bill in the mail. And I thought, this is really great. I, I can do this, you know? And so I started to build out a series of these subcontractors but I was still the human router. The tenants were calling me. I was calling the subcontractors and I was juggling my phone all day long and, and, and being the traffic cop of those, you know, instructions. And then for weeks, nothing would happen. Then all of a sudden I'd be busy again. 
And eventually I got to the point where I always had to have this real estate thing in the back of my head. I'm sure you can, you can sympathize with that. And I said, I, I can't do this anymore. I need to be focused on what really earns me money, which is my business. And so I hired a property manager and the property management firm that I hired had hundreds of apartments they were managing. And what I observed from them is they, number one, they had some kind of software where every month I got a report showing each building, how much money came in for each building. And then it had work orders attached to my property and it had different codes for suppliers. So I could tell that it wasn't the same person doing these different things. So uh, this, this firm did have a handyman on staff, but they also used plumbers and electricians and painters and roofers and all, all these other people. And so I would get this report and it would show you know, four different service calls with different supplier codes and what the, um, what the charge was to me. And so, and, and in the contract I signed, I knew that there was a markup. So I was, I was paying a percentage of the rent collected to the management firm for managing the building. And then if they hired a plumber for $100, they might bill me 110. So there was a little bit of a markup in there, again, because the, the, the client, the building owners that were having more work done were obviously more work for them and they were paying more of this company's uh, revenue. And so to me, that was just like, oh, that makes a lot of sense. They can now grow to an unlimited number of properties that they're managing. And when they have so many jobs for plumbers, they're just going to take on more plumbers as suppliers and start issuing these work orders to different, different outfits. And that I think would be the, and I don't know the name of the software, but I'm sure some Googling, you'll be able to easily yeah, find yeah. that kind of solution. Um, that kind of tool, I think is going to be something that you want to do. And, and I can imagine that on the other end of that tool, there's probably an app, that your handyman would have maybe, and, and perhaps he's assigned four different tickets for the day and he'll have to go into the app to start the ticket, put in notes or maybe take a picture and then end the ticket. And that app may also use geo tracking. So you, you might be able to go and see, yeah, he was there for an hour or he was there. Then he left and he went over here. Where's that? Oh, that's the hardware store. And then he went back. Right. And so you could see like he was working yeah, on that problem. We'll have to use that if it doesn't work, you know, and, you know, doing telegram and we'll have to find something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Mm. So, um, so I think that there's definitely probably a, a better tool out there and, you know, I'm, I'm prone to trying to duct tape together free things all the time myself. Like in my own business, I use uh, Google uh, forms, uh, which people can fill out and it goes into a Google sheet and you know, I know there's a couple of things I'm using those Google forms to manage that I'm really, I'm pushing the limit of what that tool was ever intended to do. And there's a certain weakness there. And I probably need to invest in something better, you know, for some of these things I'm doing, but that's the growing pain. But once you implement a system like that, then you should be able to grow. And then, and, you know, you said you had um, one lady who was working for you to uh, sort of assign the things when you have the proper tool in place and you get big enough, you can then have more than one person who's doing that. And the mm -hmm. system should be able to accommodate having more than one uh, traffic cop sort of directing the, these work orders. Uh, that sounds, that sounds very, very logical. Yeah. I mean, I have sort of like shied away a little bit because 
repairmen, maintenance people. I mean, they're all a bit of a nightmare to deal with and they're all trying to pull the wool over your eyes. But I mean, it's just business, right? I suppose it happens <laughs> in any business. But um, I've been trying to sort of like possibly stay away from that. It's notoriously difficult in London and around the M20, uh, the ring road around London. It's just very hard to find decent, reliable trades. And it's, I mean, but like you say, they, these companies are out there and they're, I know for a fact they're very successful. Property maintenance is a very lucrative business if you can get it right. Very mm. lucrative why why do you think it is maybe that some of these people are padding their hours like do do you think that there is a a mismatch between what everyone thinks the labor should cost and what it really should cost um i suppose um yeah <laughs> uh, I, I mean i pay him 15 pounds an hour this guy um and that's what he asked for i think like the other, I've got another guy as well. He's much more reliable and doesn't doesn't pad out his hours. And we've had him for a long time, but he's very unreliable. He won't turn up when you need him to, um, and constantly says he's got other jobs on. But he was twenty pounds an hour, and yeah, they're both sort of like what I would call pretty low grade. You wouldn't you wouldn't trust them in a in a really nice house, but my house is not not really nice houses, or some of them are, but um, most of them are not. So we. We stick there with those types of people with um, these properties and the nicer ones. I do get different trades in. That's in another area. Yeah. Do they supply? Do they bring their own tools, or do you supply? Yeah, them? yeah, they've got their own tools. I have to make sure they've got their own tools and, and transport. Um, but this guy's car keeps breaking down. You know, that's the sort of thing. You know, yeah. What? What? Um, what would that fellow earn if he became uh, a laborer in a in a bigger outfit? Would it be around the same, like 15 pounds? Probably about the same. Yeah, it's pretty cheap, yeah. yeah. So what, and this happens quite a lot, you know, when people say, well, well, what is, uh, what's someone's rate for consulting? And they say, well, it's 200 or $250 an hour. And people go, oh my goodness, $250 an hour. They equate that to a wage at a job, right? Here's the difference is when somebody is selling 30, 40, 50 hours of their time to one employer, and that employer is providing all the tools, all the equipment, everything needed to do the job, then, then we get a certain kind of idea of what labor is worth. But when you have somebody who spent all kinds of time developing their skills and abilities, and they have all of their own tools and all, provide all of their own transport, et cetera, and we want to come along and take advantage of their labor and all of that overhead capital investment that that person has created, that's where we get the consulting rate. That's why the consultant is charging, you know, so much more than a labor rate. And so when you're talking about a tradesperson, um, I know that when I hire, I had a locksmith come to my house a few weeks ago and I called a company and the company uh, sent to they, uh, the deadbolt broke and they asked me over the phone what color it was and they sent a guy to my house and he had it he had it with him the right color and so he arrived and he looked at the problem and he said well here's the problem is you know this isn't morsed correctly and he redid the whole thing and he put in the new deadbolt and he was here for about an hour and I think my bill was like 150 dollars and so what's that guy's labor rate well he's a skilled tradesperson. Here in Canada, I mean, he might be earning, and what would he be earning? Probably 60 grand a year, maybe. So that would equate to about $30 an hour on a 2,000 hour a year. US dollars. I'm talking Canadian dollars. Uh, So so maybe 30, so 
the business charged me about $140 that the, the new deadbolt, if I went to the hardware store, I'd probably buy for $20. Um, and so they probably paid him $30 for his hour of time, but they're also paying him for the time he was driving around in his truck for the time before the call, for the time after the call until he got to his next call. Right. So it's not just the time he was at my house. And then they also provided the van he was driving and they paid for all the tools in the van and everything. So for me to be able to access that person with that skill, with all of that capital investment and all of that overhead and the insurance policies they have and everything just for one hour and to be able to do it for $140 is actually a good deal for me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. People will gripe about, the, Oh, it costs a lot to have someone come and do something. But if you think about everything that's being put into that person that you get to take advantage of, it's a pretty good deal. I, I would say that when, you know, people like this guy, he's trying to basically be an independent contractor handyman. He doesn't understand the conversation I just had. He's thinking about his time as though he were an employee somewhere. And so this is why he's agreed to the 15 pound an hour wage that you're offering, but he really should be charging you much more. And, the, and because he's not charging you enough, this is what probably has created a lot of instability in his financial situation, which leads to flakiness and, and, you know, not being able, and it's also what's driving him to pad his hours because he's probably thinking I'm working hard. I'm doing all this stuff, but I can't seem to get ahead because part of his wage is going into his own transport and his tools and everything. Right. So he's, he's trying to work like an employee and absorb all of the overhead of a business into his own paycheck which would make anyone, you know, put anyone in a bad situation. So I think that if you implemented like a work order ticket program with some kind of app and you only paid him for the time he was doing these jobs, I think that the the rate has to be revisited and it probably needs to be much higher. And and then you probably won't get the problem of him trying to fool you with the amount of time he's working on these things. Uh, just to say, you know, I don't know if it's a different market, but I mean, it's just notorious here for people like him that will just take as much as they possibly, doesn't matter how much you pay him, they'll just they'll carry on padding out. I don't know. He's, he's a little bit honest, this guy, uh, in some respects, but I do get the impression that he's just on as taking as much, whatever he can, really. And I think that's the sort of a thing that you get around capital cities and like we're, we're not too far from you know London from here. Mm-hmm. Everyone could just walk away and go and find some, you know, another job or another. No one's worried right. about any sort of reputation. It's a very sort of populated, dense area in the southeast and everyone has the same problems with builders, plumbers, and by the way, a locksmith would cost you at least £150 for an hour at least, and then they probably try and charge two. But, but if, you, if you recalibrated your rate, and you may be able to find a much better person. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Because, because the more reliable tradesperson who does understand the value of their time and understands the cost of their overheads and things, they're, they're not, you're not even meeting them. Because they would see, like, if you were advertising saying I'm paying 15 pounds an hour, they would they would just gloss over that. You don't get a chance to meet them, and so that might be something that you want to consider. I suppose one of the reasons why I'm sort of using him, and I didn't really know how long it was going to last, is that he's available all the time and, in, and lives in Hamel Hempstead. It was very important they live five miles from the properties, and the only 
you know, mm-hmm. this and how I was particularly bad for trying to find these people. Um, and then, and part of the deal was you'd be available as much as possible. When I tried to deal with more expensive people, number one, they're VAT registered, um, which, and I'm not because I own properties, um, just mm-hmm. my name. Um, and number two, they just tend to be or can be more fussy and just more difficult to work with. And don't, they, they, they certainly won't work around us if we've got a tenant to fill some paperwork right. out. So it's kind of finding that balance. And I just, yeah, and I thought, and I've always thought this about the business as a whole in Hemel uh, with these rooms is that you either scale up to something like what you were talking about, and then you end up with a property uh, maintenance company and possibly a property management company, but it's not really what I want to do. Um, uh, I'm, I was sort of really hoping to try and try new things and try something different. But because uh, what we're talking about there is building businesses, it might be quite easy to build those business, but it's still going to be me in charge, me managing yeah. everybody, right? And that's going to be something that's going to take up probably the majority of my time once I get into it. Well, I mean, when you're, when you're talking about growing, there comes this point where you have this step, if you think about growing a business like a staircase, where if you're going to get to the next level, it then requires a bunch of investment, sometimes in advance of the ability to earn and, and pay for some of that stuff. Um, you know, if, if, if you have someone like this handyman, who's willing to be available all the time and willing to work for 15 pounds an hour, then that might work if he was a full-time employee. So if, if you could have that guy on a salary where he's just paid to be working for you all the time, that that's sort of the other side of the coin, right? If, if he was just working for that wage and you were providing tools and gave him, you know, a vehicle to get around if he needed to, that. That would be the other side of things. But then again, that's a commitment from you, a growth in your overhead that represents that step. And it sounds mm-hmm. like this is kind of where you're bumping up against, but let's talk about your desire for other businesses. Or would you say that you're just getting kind of tired of this and all the headaches? Yeah. Yeah. I was going to sell everything um, uh, a couple of years, about a year ago, I decided to, and I have to incorporate the business into a limited company in order to sell it cap- without capital gains and so on. The massive step means I've got to remortgage the entire um, portfolio. And then that's going to be a lot of, a lot of um, extra added costs in mortgage fees. And at the moment I've got like pre-credit crunch mortgages, for example. So it's very cheap to run. And it's a good system. It works well at the moment. Mm. Apart from the government changing tax laws, but um, yeah, I mean, um, if I if I go down that road, it, it, selling it, selling everything, and sorry, I was going to go down that road, and then they changed the rents, and so therefore I decided to keep them, and that's why I sort of contacted you in terms of like, you know, what, what could I what could I do next to add on to it? I suppose yeah. you're you're definitely at the cusp of sort of the advantages an individual investor can have. I remember when, when I owned my buildings, I had these three buildings. And then when, when I had the manager, I didn't have to do anything anymore. They sometimes would call me to ask if, you know, if I was okay with you know, replacing an old fridge or something like that, but really they were running everything. And so it was great. But the problem was, is that all the free cash flow then was now going to the manager. Like, because I was suddenly paying someone to do what I used to do and they were paying, you know, real rates for all the service work. I mean, I used to go fix broken drywall myself, but they would send some guy to go do it and it would be done perfectly and it would be done quickly, but it would cost, you know, $150, right? It, it would, the, the costs went up because everything, all the expenses were being properly recognized for the first time. 
And then I realized here I am not actually enjoying any free cash flow. I was making a profit technically, but my profit was going into the mortgage payments. The debt was declining over time. And that's what eventually got me to get out of it. There are a lot of people out there who will have a job and then they'll buy like one property or two properties to keep it at that hobby level. And from a personal standpoint, it, it helps them. It helps them become wealthier. It helps you know, their cash flow. But if you grow it into a business that you start to run into these other headaches, as you're describing, the, the, you're talking about taking a business from being what I call an informal kind of side hustle into a real business, right? This is what you're talking about incorporating and all of a sudden you can't have the same kind of mortgage anymore. And, and all of these sort of commercial overheads that you've been managing to avoid, suddenly you would have to embrace them. And if you did, your business wouldn't make sense anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, because I've had them so long, it probably would just about make sense. Uh, our repayment mortgages just about, but we can, you know, we can get interest-only mortgages here as well, which helps for cash flow and, and so on. So, um, but yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it's, it's been on that cusp for a long time, and um, I, I suppose because I've been listening to a lot about buying and selling businesses and maybe I've been listening to some of the hype from some UK um, uh, type um, people that talk about what buying and selling businesses. I think maybe I would like prefer to try to buy a business that has already got management in place. That, that would be the, the ideal situation. And then maybe, I don't know what you think, the manager of that business could oversee some staff running my properties doing what I'm doing at the moment. Maybe it could work. You never know what business I might find, right? Well, you know, the, the, the challenge is to find a business that has that manager in place, that, you know, basically. And when you look at <clears throat> smaller businesses, typically the owner tends to be that person. And when you get into bigger businesses, so earning, you know, with profits of hundreds of thousands of pounds, right? then you might be able to find businesses that have that management team already in place. Here's the, here's the caution is that usually those businesses were started up or built or developed over time by someone who had an expertise in that industry. And then they backed out by putting a manager in their, in their place. And so that owner, they understand what's going on in that business and they may or may not have, that dashboard that I was referring to earlier that Tony set up for, for his different managers. And so they might just be talking with their manager and maybe logging in online to some backend systems, looking at numbers and things to keep an eye on that business without having to be there. The problem will be for you to have that same set of competencies when you buy that business, even with the manager there. And, and if that manager were to leave, for example, what would happen then? Because you know a current owner who's kind of absent with a manager in place, if that owner used to be the manager and built up the business, they can always step back in, at least temporarily, and then you know train the new person. The worst example that I've ever heard of this was someone bought a business, and it wasn't even the general manager that departed. It was an operations person, but they had specific knowledge as to how things were done. And unfortunately, the gentleman passed away like in an accident, in a car accident, or, and, and just all of a sudden, part of the intellectual capital of the business disappeared and really nobody knew how he did what he did. 
and they had to they had to recreate um, what this person was doing in, in like in the matter of weeks and try to figure it out. And and months later, they realized they still hadn't quite figured it out. And so that's the problem with you know in a big enterprise, you know if you think about you know these chain stores. Well, there's all kinds of managers in every location. If one of them were to depart, they could transfer someone. They could at least have some of the other managers help to train the new person that gets hired. You know, there's all this cross competency. That's the challenge in smaller businesses is you may not have any of that cross competency. So um, I always tell people that if this is their goal, they need to do an examination of their own history and find out what experience they have and what industries they have to see, even if they're going to buy a business with a manager in place to make sure that they are going to be able to acquire the needed knowledge that if they had to, they could step in and manage the business themselves. I, I sometimes, you know, here, here's an example. And, and this is how I think it's done right. You buy a business and maybe the owner is the manager. You step in and you become the manager and you get the owner to train you. You spend a good deal of time there, maybe a year doing that job every day. And then you build the systems and processes and learn what the performance indicators are that you want to track. You build that dashboard. Then you're ready to train someone to fill your role. And it might be someone in the organization already that's going to step up and become the manager. Um, but if that person ever leaves, you are able to go back into it because you've actually done the job. And I, I, I think that that's the part that scares off a lot of people because they have this notion that they can buy a business and not really have to worry much about it. I mean, that's what happens when we buy the shares of publicly traded companies. You, you buy the stock and you don't have to worry about what goes on it over there because that's all taken care of. But we don't get the same rates of return than that we do with a private company. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I suppose I'm, from what other stuff I've been listening to, this is maybe where it, it might be hype or whatever, is that you can potentially buy a business with one, two million pound turnover, maybe using little or none of your own money, and it will be profitable or you'll be able to or it might be money even or at a slight loss or you might you, you can see some avenue of being able to make that that company profitable but it may have in the examples that i've heard and i've heard a lot on podcasts and so on maybe five six staff or something and maybe one or two of them need to go and and, and so on and you might go in and do some restructuring and i thought maybe letting agents might be a good good option for me to have a look around at or possibly something else in properties what someone told me that would be best for me maybe property development i've done some property development yeah so you know the the idea about buying a business with little or none of your own money here here's the here's the issue with it is that you are going to find examples of this being done so it's possible the the issue is that it's it's not normal and so it's not probable right and so, so if you think about those two words, you know, what is possible and what is probable, if you find a business owner who has suddenly been diagnosed with cancer and doesn't have anyone in his family to take over his business and, you know, needs to, needs to stop running the day to day and you show up at just the right moment with, and, and that he believes you can run the business, they might hand over the keys in exchange for a note and finance the whole deal. I mean, that's 
possible, right? Um, but it's not probable. That I mean, I I I have talked one on one with people who've gone through those types of zero down programs, who have invested years of their life trying to find what I call it going on a unicorn hunt. Right. Yeah. You know, here's here's our rifle. We're heading off in the woods to go find a unicorn for for supper. It's maybe there's one out there, but the odds of finding it are just so tiny. Um, the, the more common examples I've run across of people who've bought a business without using any of their own money. And, and, and here's the, the other caveat is that you can buy a business without using your own money if, and, and it's more often done by people who have other resources or own other businesses. So you are not a broke person. You have wealth and resources for you to be able to go to a bank and maybe sign a line of credit loan with a, just a personal guarantee. I mean, you might be able to do that. You potentially could get a line of credit at the bank on a personal signature. That's enough money for you to go and buy a, one of these small businesses outright. Well, you just bought a business without using any money of your own. But one of the reasons yeah, one of the main reasons I got into all this from the person um, that, that, um, that, that was selling his courses was that you don't have to sign personal guarantees with it. And, and this is buying buying businesses, the baby boomer generation. And this, I thought, wow, that's amazing. I've just signed a personal guarantee on a property development for X amount. I just, I, I don't feel comfortable. I don't want to do it ever again. So I'll try and find something else to do. But it sounds to me like, and I've learned since from other people as well, that there are personal guarantees. Everyone wants a personal guarantee. And you're putting your house on your line each time, right? So, and like well, you said, and- you know, I at one point I was working for American Express, and so I was doing revolving credit products, and we were one of the only lenders in my market here that was willing to to extend any credit to a small business without a personal guarantee. Here are here are the here's the fine print. There had to be a minimum uh, total sales or turnover of $2 million a year. And they had to show us financial statements showing profitability for the last few years. And the credit that we were extending unsecured was like twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. It, it, it wasn't huge sums of money. It was really small amounts and it was all paid 30 days. So it was tight rotation, month in, month out. The, the, the Amex bank wasn't extending a tremendous amount of risk or credit to these businesses. And they had a track record. No startups were getting that deal. You know, no smaller businesses were getting that deal. It, they knew from their own statistical analysis where that risk, you know, sort of line was and, and they kept on one side of it. You know, the, right. if you, the, I've, I've, I, I've heard a lot of these pitches and so the idea that you are going to use, they call them asset-based lenders. They're going to say, look, the business has this equipment and machinery or these receivables, and you're going to pledge these assets. And this is how you're going to borrow the money. The, the issue comes down to this is, is the way that a high street bank looks at equipment in a business and the way that an asset-based lender looks at equipment in a business is very different. So the high street bank is going to be more willing to look at an appraisal talking about the fair market value of that equipment. And, and when an appraiser or a surveyor in the UK looks at equipment at a fair market value, they're also taking into account 
the machinery, what it cost maybe to get it there, uh, what it might have cost to install it, if it had to be set up and wired in and all this kind of thing. So if you think about a pizza oven, the cost of hooking it up to the gas, that's part of the value that the pizza oven holds when it's in the pizzeria and you want to use it right there to make pizza, right? And so those lenders are looking at the business. They're seeing that there's a positive cash flow. They're seeing that you have the ability, if you own the business, to make the loan payment. They're going to take the collateral because it helps to protect them, but their loan decision is not being made about the collateral. Their loan decision is being made about the business, your experience running that kind of business, and whether that you can demonstrate that there's a really good possibility that you are going, or probability that you are going to pay those loan payments. Bankers don't want equipment. They want the payments, right? When we get into the world of asset-based lenders, we're literally talking about the pawnbrokers of commercial finance, okay? So, you know, if you think about a pawnbroker, you go in there with, uh, you know, a gold ring or something, they're not going to ask you for your tax return. They're not going to ask you for your pay stub. They're not going to ask anything about you and your finances. They're going to just look at that ring and they're going to say, hmm, we might be able to sell this for a hundred pounds. So we'll make you a loan of 40, right? And then they're going to hold on to it. The difference is the asset-based lender, they're not going to hold on to the collateral. They're going to put a lien on it. Um, you know, they're going to register security. You get to keep it. But the asset-based lender's lending decision is going to be based on the value of the thing. And so this is why companies that get into trouble as far as earnings, they often have to turn to those asset-based lenders. And, I, you know, so when you look at a business, if it's a good profitable business, then it should have some degree of goodwill, which is a value over and above the value of the tangible assets in the business. If you went to uh, a regular commercial bank, they might be willing to lend you three, 75% of the value of those, the equipment, machinery, inventory, or something like that. Let's just use that as a benchmark. Well, then where is the money going to come from for the balance? Some of it will be expected to come from the seller. Seller financing is important to balance the risk between buyer and seller. But <clears throat> banks, when they look at a deal, they measure risk through something called a debt to equity ratio. They want to see that you've got something to lose or your partners. If, if you know, you're not bringing any money, maybe there's a group of people buying the business and some of them have money. They want to see that there's going to be some financial stability in that business. So they often look at a debt to equity ratio and one rule of thumb, which tends, which I've discovered is kind of global around the world when there's no government guarantees involved is about a three to one, is about $3 of debt for $1 of equity, seems to be where most bankers in the world are comfortable. Outside of real estate, we're just talking about businesses here. And so if you've got profitability and you've got something in it of your own to lose, and often banks will wanna see further resources available, if things go bad, you can put more money in, then they're gonna make that loan. Again, they're making the loan under the understanding that this business has the ability to make the payments. So is that without personal, Richard, you're talking about without personal guarantees there? No, they're, they're going to ask for every kind of security they can, right? right? Because, because banks are not in the business of taking on risk. They're in the business of earning profits, right? So they're going to take the collateral. They're going to take your personal guarantee. But then they're also going to give you this really low interest rate, right? Nicely. 
and, and this is the this is your high street commercial bank, right? And so this is where you're going to be able to make a deal for the business and have the maximum cash flow and have everything make the most sense. When you get into the asset based lending, instead of seventy five percent of the fair market value, they're going to say perhaps that they'll lend you sixty percent of the orderly liquidation value. So. Yes, they may make a loan and only take the collateral as their security, but now the loan size shrinks tremendously because they're looking at a different definition of value. So in the case of the pizzeria, they're not looking at the value of the oven in place. They're looking at the value of the oven after they send three guys to disconnect it from the gas and load it onto a truck and haul it over somewhere where it can go for sale or auction, right? And so, so the amount of money forthcoming is much, much less when you're talking about an asset-based lender. And I've actually, in my business buyer adventure group coaching program, I did an interview. I had an asset-based lender come in to talk with the group about what they do. And, you know, a lot of the, they're talking about interest rates in the mid to high teens, a lot of the time, and they still don't look at just the equipment. They still look at who is this management team? Do they know what they're doing? they know that they lend into situations where maybe that debt to equity ratio isn't there. Like they know that there's a problem. Nobody goes to them who doesn't have a problem. Right. And so they know there's a problem. They know they have to charge more, but they also are very aware of who am I getting into business with? You know, do these people have the track record to be able to pull this off? Because while they're more sensitive to the collateral, they still don't want the equipment. They, they want the money. Right. And so um, you know, the, the, on my website, davidcbarnett.com, there's a tab called buy a business with no money. There all the videos I've ever done on this topic are collected there, but there's this one about a trucking company in Alberta in Canada. And that is the, probably the one methodology that I've seen that really does work for a person with no money to buy a business with no money. And in that case, what happened is the, the buyer started working for the company, worked for many years, eventually became the manager, like you're describing, they became the manager and the owner stepped back. And, and that owner had experience in the trucking company, was able to talk with that manager. The two men became friends and the seller said, you know, I would love for you to be able to buy this business. And the guy said, I don't have any money. They went and spoke to the bank. The bank looked at the business looked at the total uh, leverage the business could bear. The bank lent a bunch of extra money to the business to totally leverage it up. And that extra cash was taken out by the owner as a dividend. So at that point, the business's equity had its tiniest value because all of a sudden it had this big debt. And at that moment, the seller sold the shares to the buyer and held a note. So he got his uh, dividend, uh, he wanted to sell his business, he's got the dividend out and then it goes to the new owner and it was financed up to what, like 75%, something like that. Um, yep, the, the trucks yeah. and trailers and equipment was all financed up and then the, the seller took a note for the shares. Now, what those two had was a relationship and trust. And so would a stranger coming in off the street to talk with that seller, be able to access the same deal. I don't think so. Right. Well, you, you say you got a relationship, you got to be, you're going to be in bed together for some period of time. And then it's just not going to happen. The trust has to be built over a long period. doesn't it? Yeah. Like, you know, let's, let's consider the hazards in that scenario. 
if that seller, so we're talking about a company as a going concern. So there's payables, there's receivables, and there's this new bank loan. Okay. And if an unscrupulous person were to acquire this business under those terms, they've got nothing into it. They could go in there, they could collect the receivables, they could not pay the payables, they could grow the cash position, they could withdraw the money themselves and take off, right? The whole thing would fall apart. Mm. And so that's the kind of risk that the seller faces when they do that kind of deal. You know, um, so when you say that, that you could like, disappear, do the, uh, just you know, go and leave the situation, is there not, uh, you say about the seller notes, is there not the same note, similar contractual arrangement for the for the buyer as well? Or are you just saying that the buyer potentially could be that dishonest and not worry about his credit file or, or anything? Yeah. Is there, I mean, yeah. you know, there's there's contracts and then there's enforcing contracts. It's two different things. Talking about lowest levels, it's not worth the corporate, uh, the legal bills. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, I've sued people before. I've been to, I'm, you know, I used to own apartments. I've been to small claims court five times and what an experience, right? And, you know, the, the alluring thing about small claims court where I live is a $50 filing fee and you don't need a lawyer. You just go there yourself, right? <laughs> I mean, two of the five times the other party showed up, the other three times they didn't. So when they didn't show up, I just, I said my side of the story. They weren't there to defend themselves. The judge gave me, you know, a judgment. Well, what's that now? It's a piece of paper that says they have to pay. So if I wanted to enforce that, I would have to go to the, here where I live, it's called the sheriff's office. And I would have to go there and say, I want to apply this judgment on that person. And they would say, great. Do they own anything of value? (laughs) It's like, so, you know, if you're talking about a deadbeat tenant who, you know, is working a wage job and doesn't really have anything uh, in the way of assets. I mean, there's, I would have to go find the asset and then get the sheriff and then pay the sheriff's fee to apply the lien on the asset. Like, and in the case of this commercial business, the trucking company, if that scenario played out, then the seller would have to go and find them, sue them, Using you know, for a case that big, you wouldn't be in small claims. You'd have to have an attorney. So you have to pay the solicitor's fees. You'd have to take them to court. You'd have to obtain the judgment. Then you would have to find the property. You'd have to mm-hmm. find where the money went so that you could go and try to apply that lien or whatnot. Right. Mm-hmm. Don't you think like uh, someone like myself, I'm looking for businesses that I, cause I can show my credit file. I can show properties and so on that I might create, you know, there's going to be some, it's worth it in some sense you know so i mean what i mean is it would create more trust than like you say like one of our tenants (laughs) all the time by the way (laughs) the way you the way you leverage trust and so there's two ways there's either demonstrating that you're a superhero so you know here's another possible example that i've seen thrown up over the years um gentleman with 30, 25 years experience in certain industry gets a divorce, ends up losing everything, goes bankrupt. Okay. So now worth zero, but successfully led businesses in a certain industry for 25 years, right? That person goes and contacts business owners in that same industry. That person might be able to create that trust from the first meeting. 
because of what they bring to the table as far as a resume, because of, of what they've done and people in that industry would likely have heard of that person before, right? So it's not necessarily a stranger, right? It's, it's a person you know or have know of or that the business owners could probably learn about through their own network by making some calls. Have you heard of this guy? Oh yeah, I heard of that guy, right? So that's one way. The other way is to leverage your personal network. So friends, colleagues, families, et cetera, in your own personal community, and then one or two steps beyond them, right? So the friends of friends, because then there's a common point of interest. This is the one of the principles I use in my, my local in, uh, invest local strategy for making small private business loans is that if the deals come to you from friends of friends, then there's a social connection and it's wired into us that we don't want to do things that ruin our credibility in our community, right? Because we, you know, back from tribal days, we all had to get along or else you ended up getting kicked out of the tribe and that wasn't good. So if somebody you know knows someone who wants to sell a business and that person trusts the middleman, then you can leverage the trust of that connection in order to create you know, positive vibes in that potential seller. Yeah. It's, but it's, you know, well, I hear some of these guys who say, oh, you just need to contact 5,000 businesses. Well, I mean, that's a, that's a spray and pray methodology. That's, like I said, I've met people who've gone to these courses who've literally invested years trying to find the unicorn. That's what they're trying to do. They're yeah, trying to... In America or where, 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 everywhere, everywhere, you may know. Yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Okay. People from the UK, people from America, people. The, the idea that you can secure yourself something of great value without exchanging something else of value is alluring. Yeah, yeah, and this uh, this is where the, the vast amount of money gets paid for courses and, and all the rest of it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I like you say, I think that the examples that I've heard of it are exactly as you say. It's the one-off. It's the unicorn that worked for them at the right. That right, they just managed to get it, and, and that was it. And it's very uh, difficult to get in reality. Yeah, and I think that's that's the, sorry, that's what you mentioned, like mail shots. That seems to be the um, what I've heard that. The, the great magic thing that works uh, in the UK is to contact all the baby boomers. It could be any business. Like, I mean, one guy does um, nurseries, uh, children's nurseries, and he just markets and sends out thousands of letters to, to these nurseries around the country. And his strategy is just to build and build and build um, a group of nurseries, which yeah, good good idea. It seems to it seems to be working. I don't just don't know how. When I've looked at it, it doesn't seem to be working quite as well as he makes out that it's working. <laughs> no, he's not. He's not buying one a week. I think. Like he says. Well, but the thing about businesses like nurseries, uh, daycares, we call them over here, is that I've seen the financial statements of a lot of them, and uh, it's hit or miss. I mean, you're talking about an industry where, in some places, there's some government involvement like with subsidies or programs and things like that. And in, in other places, there's government in, um, restrictions, you know, with respect to ratios, you know, how many caregivers per child of children of a different age and this kind of thing. Right. And so, so your, your expenses get legislated in, like you, 
you can't cut expenses. You have to follow all these rules. And so I've seen situations where, um, you know, people that are trying to run a nursery in a leased locate in a leased property, um, they barely make any money and the owners working a lot of hours themselves. And then there's owners who bought a building 20 years ago and opened a daycare and they believe they have a really successful business. But when you factor in the fair market value of the property, they're actually in the same boat. They're really just working 40 hours a week to be their own tenant, you know, and because they bought the building a long time ago, they've taken advantage of inflation, right? They, they, they got that asset working for them a long time ago. But when you, when you show them the numbers and say, you know, if you kept the building and just charged rent and you let somebody else run this business, you, you would be earning just as much, you know, mm. it's, it's some disappointing conversations for a lot of people. And mm. so well, I, I think I know the guy you're talking about. And, and there are some examples that he's, he's talked about where he, you know, talks about people contacting him who've had a rough time, particularly during the lockdown period in 2020. And these people just want to give up and, you know, give him the business for next to nothing. Mm. Well, it was probably the best alternative to closing. Right. Mm. So, I mean, to take a, a sector where you have a hard time making money a lot of the time and to roll them all together into something bigger that might be attractive to another buyer. I mean, the proof is in the pudding. We'll have to see what he does, but it's all private. It's all private deals. So we can't really ever truly know what's going on. Yeah. Um, but do you, do you think that um, in the UK, cause that was another question I had is, um, his strategy is to, to build the biggest uh, the business to a bigger turnover to a bigger profit and then you get the private equity business and there's a different multiple that is valued on it does that work the same way in england as it does in the us because i heard you it works the same same way everywhere because once you as you get bigger and bigger businesses with bigger and bigger ebitda profits um it becomes attractive to financial financially oriented organizations so private equity group they're money people. They, they don't maybe particularly know how to run into certain business, but if there's enough profit, they can see that they can put, you know, a superhero of their own in charge. So they can poach, you know, a big manager from a big company and pay him, you know, the $200,000 salary or whatever to run that for them. So in order for it to be attractive to them, it has to be of a certain size. The whole idea of rolling up multiple businesses to make a bigger one has been around for a long time. Uh, I have a video on my YouTube channel called the miracle of a roll-up strategy where I, I talk about this. The, the problem is the execution is in pulling it off. And if somebody can pull it off, then it, then it can pay off handsomely for them. But here's the thing with the example that you cited, the businesses that you're acquiring, the turnover might be growing, but businesses aren't valued on turnover. They're valued on that profit. So in order for him to be successful in that, he's got to actually be creating better businesses with these businesses that he's acquiring and it's got to be increasing the profit. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So it is possible. So, I mean, for example, for myself, like, you know, uh, with um, property, it could be a state agent. So I might, I might find, you know, letting agents, but you see them come and go all the time. So it might be some, it might be a strategy it, it could work like like that, like care, like care homes, nurseries, uh, sorry, um, 
nursery as we call it here. Um, so you, you you just you just build up a, a portfolio of them, and then. But how big does it need to get to? Do you think? I mean, I don't know how much you know about the UK before you're going to see a rise in multiples like that of evaluation. The, traditionally, that line in the sand has been about five hundred thousand US dollars, so probably you know three fifty four hundred ish k in British pounds. Hmm. But it varies by industry. So um, the I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I was talking with a guy who has a paper shredding business in Pennsylvania. So they destroy documents. He's got one truck. He tells me he gets calls three or four times a, a month from people looking to acquire his business because it's so easily rolled into one of those bigger, they call them platform businesses because they, they've already got the systems and processes and everything in place. They see him as an easy add-in, right? So he's being approached all the time by these strategic buyers not necessarily that they're going to pay him a super high multiple, but they would probably pay more for his business than an individual coming along looking to, to fill his shoes, right? The, the other thing is that the stock market valuations and the fact that you can't get a good yield on investments in the stock market is driving more money into the private equity groups. Um, there's, this, there's this podcast I listen to. Uh, so I'll give a shout out to David McIlvaney, the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. He's in Colorado and he's a money manager and his podcast is about finance and geopolitics and, and stuff like that. He, he attended a, an investment conference in New York about a year and a half ago and they were talking about private equity groups and they had an amazing statistic that said that like 80, 80% or 85% of private equity group investors believed that their managers were above average. Okay. So all the investors think that they're with the winner and in a traditional private equity group sort of format, if they're investing in stocks and bonds, there's a public market for that. So we know what they're worth. So that private equity group would, would say, here's our portfolio and here's what it's worth. And it would be marked to market, right? They, they would always be able to know what the portfolio is worth. So as an investor in the group, you'd be able to track and see how well they're doing. Well, when they buy private companies, there's no market. There's no market for the stock. And so what the private equity groups get to do is they get to mark to model. So they get to create their own valuation model that says what the business is likely worth, right? But we don't get to prove that until they actually try to sell their position. Then we find out what it's really worth. And so you have private equity groups who are demonstrating these really great rates of return based on buying these businesses because of the model they have that shows what the businesses should be worth, right? And so more and more money flows into them. And this is what's causing these private equity groups to start chasing smaller and smaller businesses. The space is becoming more and more crowded. Um, I did a video on my YouTube channel uh, Chicago bigwig versus the pigs and the pegs. And he was a, a C-level guy from a big company in Chicago and he was trying to buy his own business. He was looking for something that earned between half a million and a million dollars a year. And he was his complaint was that he was always being outbid by these other groups. And, and I explained in the video why, and that a guy like him, the strategy I often recommend is to look for something below that private equity group interest level and that's where you work on, you choose a business that you know how to grow. This is why it's so important to analyze your own skills and abilities 
so that you pick a business that you know something about that you can help grow and, and you take it above the line. So you buy below, you uh, take it about above. Half a million, one million, uh, half a million to one million profit. We're talking about EBITDA or yeah. So, so for you in the UK, um, in general, and it, again, it varies by industry, but in general, you're probably looking for a business that earns below 400,000 pounds EBITDA. And mm-hmm. then you want to take it above that line. And then the buy, multiplier then will start to grow. And you could do that by adding uh, other other businesses, like you just mentioned, like, so say, for example, laying agent, you could then add a property maintenance company. And then I suppose this is all industry specific as well, isn't it? But you, you want to look at who's going to buy your, your group at, at the end. But I'd imagine that would work. Thinking about who the buyer will be is important. But I mean, there's two ways to grow. You can grow through acquisition or you can grow organically. I mean, if if you look at your own work history and you look at all the different businesses you've worked in and the types of things you were doing, right. And then you look at a business and you say, you know what, they're not doing sales correctly. They're not doing marketing correctly. They're not doing retention correctly or or what have you. And you have the skills to fix that. Well, you can grow a business organically. A lot of the times when a seller is a baby boomer who's looking to retire and they've been in business for a lot of time, they don't have very many debts um, there's no, there's no banker nipping at their heels to get them to move all the time. What you often find is that prices are not being raised often enough that processes and systems are not efficient and it didn't matter for them because they were making a good living out of the business. So you get in there and, you know, when my ex-wife and I bought the trophy shop, uh, the lady who sold it to, to my ex-wife, uh, was charging almost half for engraving fees that another shop in town was charging. I've had that uh, podcast. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. So, so then the question, is, well, you can't just double the price overnight because now you're like, well, who our customers are expecting this pricing, but very quickly over the course of just two years, she caught up through implementing some increases. Most of the customers didn't even say anything. Most of them didn't even notice. They, they were infrequent users. They just came, paid the bill. They didn't care if the bill was, $30 or $33. It didn't matter, but it made a huge impact in the performance of the business. Right. Mm. And so. Sorry, just, just one second. On yeah. battery. Oh, no problem. Well, we need to wrap up. We need to wrap up anyway, but. Um, yes, yeah, it's been over an hour, so I just sort of lost track of time there. But that's great. <laughs> Thanks for the mistake. Yeah. But you see, you know, you have these assets in these buildings. And so let me challenge you with one thought in departure here. Um, Don't be afraid to be creative. Okay. So if you find a business that is in your local area and you find somebody who's working really hard as a manager of that business and they're looking to retire through selling, you could, for example, make them an offer that includes giving them one of your buildings. Okay, yeah, I yeah, see what you mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? It, mm-hmm. You don't necessarily have to think in terms of pounds. Mm-hmm. And for somebody selling a business who's used to working really hard and long hours, acquiring a single rental property in part of the deal might be something attractive to them as a retirement project. Yeah, be like a passive income for them if we manage it, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Or even if you don't manage it, if they see that it would just take a few hours a week of their time or, or 
like, don't be afraid to play with this, with these assets, right? Mm. There's, there's a guy in the States named Tom Henderson and he buys and sells secondary uh, uh, private mortgages in the secondary market. So in a lot of rural parts of America, uh, people can't get mortgages because the property is too far from town or doesn't have a well or what have you. And when these properties are sold, the seller has to hold the note. Well, there's a whole market for people that buy those notes. He, he has talked at length in some podcasts I've listened to about acquiring those notes and then giving those notes to people in exchange for acquiring properties and things. Okay, He'll use them almost like trading cards, right? Okay. They're assets. And so your properties that you have today are also assets and mm -hmm. there could be a, an attractive way for you to make a deal with, with one of those. Just something to think yeah. about. Yeah, it just gives me an idea to just try and be creative. I think, yeah, definitely. Brilliant. Thanks very much for your time, Dave. Aaron, it's been a pleasure. Good luck to you and uh, have a great holiday season, okay? And you. Merry Christmas. Cheers. Bye. All right, bye-bye.